0: You know, the average person at a doctor's appointment gets interrupted after, what, 17 seconds? We tend to talk at people a lot instead of listening. But when I was able to listen, that was what made the biggest difference, I think. And to be able to accept people's fears, to let them be wherever they were, I think is really the biggest gift we can give someone who's struggling with a serious illness or at the end of their life.
1: Welcome to Radical Nurse Talk, a podcast that explores nurses' communication in serious situations and illness as a radical act of care. I'm your host, Patricia Dragon. Nurses can also be patients, and the view from the other side often gives nurses lots to think about. This was the case for Teresa Brown. In our conversation today, Teresa reflects On stories she lived as a nurse and a patient. She talks about the tensions in these from both perspectives and their influence for developing relationships with patients who are desperately trying to survive. Teresa lives in Pittsburgh, and she's had a remarkable journey as an academic, oncology and hospice nurse, patient, author, and international speaker. Her book, The Shift, One Nurse, 12 Hours, Four Patients' Lives, was a New York Times- bestseller. In April 2022, she released her third book, Healing, When a Nurse Becomes a Patient, that powerfully and candidly lays bare her own journey following a breast cancer diagnosis. Her insights and experiences offer much to help us understand, value, and learn from the critical importance of nurses' talk with patients and families. Today, we're going to explore aspects of those conversations words and phrases that might be understood as difficult or hard, and sometimes what are the most mundane situations? This, from Teresa's perspective as an oncology nurse and patient. Welcome, Teresa. I'm thrilled to have you here today. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'm wondering, to start with, if you can briefly let us know about your background as a nurse.
0: Yeah, so I have a PhD in English. I I thought I was going to be an English professor when I grow up um, and <laughs> taught for three years at Tufts University, then had kids and felt like I wanted something different. And it was it was really being pregnant with twins and then having baby twins. What I always say is I fell in love with the mess of life, which when I say that to nurses, they all nod their heads. Non-nurses look a little bit perplexed, but like they're interested Um so the re- reality of having these two tiny babies, and and then our our son who was a toddler, and um, you know laundry and diapers, but also love and joy and laughter and you know what what job is like that? And I have a friend who's a nurse who was visiting when the girls were about a year and a half, and I said, you know, I just thought the midwives I had had the coolest job in the world, and she looked at me and she said, Teresa you could do that job. And it had never crossed my mind that I could become a nurse. And um, then I did some research and found out why wow, I could become a nurse and learned about accelerated programs where people don't know if you have a college degree in anything or a PhD, you can get the science prerequisites that you need and then do uh, a nursing program that ten- they tend to be a year to a year and another semester. So that's what I did and loved it. I mean, I didn't, nursing school is hard. I can't say I really love nursing school, but I loved (laughs) learning about being a nurse and uh, then began working in oncology with leukemia patients and bone marrow transplant patients. Then went to outpatient oncology, home hospice, and uh, along with that became someone who writes about nursing and healthcare.
1: I'm wondering what you learned about how to talk to patients who are living with these serious diagnoses, leukemia, et cetera, or undergoing very high-risk treatments. Do you recall any education that you
0: had or
1: thinking about
0: it, thinking about what to say? Lots of thinking about it. This is a situation where being older made a huge difference because I could bring more life experience to the table. But also, my PhD in English meant I had a keen awareness of stories, the power of stories, also what gets told and what doesn't get told. It made me a really good listener to people's stories. And also, it made me a listener. And I, I think that's something that doesn't get talked about enough in healthcare. You know, the average person at a doctor's appointment gets interrupted after what, 17 seconds? We tend to talk. At people a lot instead of listening. And I have definitely done that too, like going through discharge instructions, which you know have been delayed by four hours and people just want to get out of the hospital. And my mind is on, let me get through this task, have them sign the form so they can leave. I have talked at people, but when I was able to listen, that was what made the biggest difference, I think, and to be able to accept people's fears. To let them be wherever they were, I think is really the biggest gift we can give someone who's struggling with a serious illness or at the end of their life. And then if there were specific questions they had... You know, the doctor told me this this morning and I don't understand how that chemo works. And okay, well, I can try to answer that, but you know, then we can call the doctor and have the doctor come back. Sometimes someone really wants to talk to a religious figure. They want a priest to come in or a rabbi. Okay. I can, I can make that happen. But the essence of it is meeting that person where they are. What do you want? You know, once we had a long-term patient who just really wanted to see her dog. <laughs> And I I did the work to set it up so her her little teeny tiny dog could come in and she could spend an hour with her dog. Yeah. You know, you know. So
1: I think uh, in my experience, anyway, having those uh, the time to be able to actually listen is something that nurses really struggle with and is um, often something that's not understood widely uh, as important as perhaps some of the the tasks. I don't know if you found that to be true. So how do you have time to listen to stories?
0: Wow, what a great question because as anyone who's been in the hospital knows, you're always carrying a phone and the phone will interrupt you at any time. Occasionally when it was really important, I would ask someone if they could take my phone for me. But you're right, I had to have time to do that um and a colleague who is willing to do that um it can be very very frustrating to know that someone needs to have a conversation and I'm there for them to lean on me but I just don't have time to do that for them that's hard and it's getting harder and i think the public doesn't understand all these discussions about staffing you know there are so many things you can't do as a nurse when you're overworked there are tasks that will not get done there are crucial signals to how people are doing that will not get seen there are also emotional needs that will absolutely not get met because the nurse does not have time you know that is hard and there's a cumulative effect of all that missed stuff but the the importance of meeting those emotional needs and wanting to be there for patients and not being able to be cannot be understated that really matters. So to nurses listening, you know, if something's really important, are you able to give someone else your phone? Can you ask your manager if you can carve out 15 minutes to be with someone? Sometimes you just get really lucky and you go in to talk to someone and your phone doesn't ring. Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah. And and
1: perhaps this is something that we should be elevating beyond your charge nurse or your uh, supervisor and, uh, having administration and people who make decisions about the conditions of nurses' work, that they understand that. I'm wondering, uh, as a patient later uh, living with a serious illness, did you ever think about what we were just talking about? Were nurses available to you? Were there times you wanted to share something or ask something and felt you could or couldn't? there were so many
0: times I wanted to ask something and felt like I couldn't. And um, that's really what motivated me to write Healing because being on the other side, I could not believe how lacking in compassion the healthcare I received was. It, It was truly shocking to me and upsetting. It made me look back and see moments where I knew it wasn't really meeting people's needs, but I was so pressed by the system, I wasn't able to. And I saw those moments in all their emotional complexity for the patient. Um, and that's part of what the book is about. But also just, you know, after uh, getting my initial diagnosis, after a follow-up mammogram, I was told, you will not leave today without a biopsy scheduled Went to schedule the biopsy, sitting there, obviously been crying. I was probably still crying, uh, sitting there, sitting there. Finally, someone comes by and says, oh, she leaves at three. You just missed her. And this is not a terrible thing to say uh, necessarily, right? But in that moment, I wanted to hurt that person. It felt like such a diminishment of what I was going through and what I had been promised. And what I felt like I needed to feel like I'm not just alone with this most likely cancer diagnosis. That just happened over and over and over again. I mean, even at one point they were, this was afterwards, they were trying a certain kind of treatment because tamoxifen, the the usual drug you get wasn't really working for me and I'm waiting in the treatment center. And the nurse comes out and says, Well, the doctor hasn't signed this order. Like, why would you tell a patient that? And here I am, I'm a nurse. You know, I just felt like first of all, I don't need to know that. And second of all, you're in a hospital. Go find a doctor to sign the order. I mean, you know. <laughs> Cuz that's the kind of nurse I was. I'd be like, this order needs to be signed. So who is going to sign this order? To me though, it's, it speaks not to that this was a bad nurse because I don't think she was, but to how much pressure there is for all the paperwork to be in place and everything to be checked and the i's to be dotted and the t's to be crossed and it just bleeds over into everything um so instead of me being able to show up and oh hey great here's what we're going to give you do you have questions let's educate you it becomes this whole ridiculousness about the paperwork's not signed and oh what about this and what about that and they're sort of conferring about it in front of me and it's horrible like that no one should do that in front of a patient um I just was appalled. That's a strong word, but about how little feeling there was for where I was and what I was going through. So
1: focus on procedures, task, and you didn't feel it was about you, even though it was about you. It wasn't it wasn't meeting what you needed at that time.
0: Right. And and certainly that information can be presented, but it always needs to be presented. With empathy for the patient, hey, we're really sorry. Your procedure has gotten postponed. Hey, apologies. I don't know why it's taking them three hours to read your mammogram, but it doesn't mean that you've had a cancer recurrence, which is what happened to me last time I had a mammogram. Instead, it's, I don't know if people feel like they shouldn't say that they're sorry, they're not good at explaining. They're so afraid of someone blowing up at them that they just just don't want to talk about it. Yeah. (laughs) But it it would be really easy to diffuse a lot of bad feeling by just coming to people and saying, Hey, I see you. You know, you're waiting and waiting is hard. And here's what's happening. And when I was writing healing and looked into research on compassion and healthcare, there's a lot of evidence that very small interventions, like what I just Mention can make a huge difference. And you know, you're giving someone the same message. Well, you know, your mammogram, you know, they'll get to it when they get to it in the same amount of time. You could say, Hey, I know waiting's hard. This doesn't mean that it's bad news. It's what do you say in that moment that can help someone feel better instead of making them feel like they're on the healthcare assembly line? And all that really matters is, did you give your copay? Which I know from working with nurses and doctors, definitely the human matters more than the copay. But as a patient, it's easy to just feel like it's about, um, did you pay your money? Are the boxes checked? Okay. Next. So that's something right
1: now in our system in Canada that we uh, are wrestling with. We, we don't have those copay conversations and we're hoping <laughs> not to, <laughs> but we do have lots of checklists. I remember in your book, you using a phrase about feeling one of many. I think that's something. Uh, so maybe that's like the assembly line. You're, yes. Uh, yeah. So although this podcast and our focus is really around hard conversations, um, this is really around situations that are hard for the patient that don't seem to be about difficult conversations. And yet the
0: conversation
1: becomes difficult because you feel
0: ignored or or invisible as a person. Right, they're not difficult conversations, but they become they're not about difficult subjects, but they become difficult conversations. And and it could be partly that the difficult subject is kind of there on the edges. You know, I'm a cancer patient waiting for the results of a mammogram, which puts so much more stress Um, the waiting, then if I hadn't had a cancer diagnosis, that's actually really helpful to think about what's not getting talked about. What's at the edges there of the procedure, the test? What is this person afraid of? Even if they look calm and like they aren't afraid, or even if they look really angry (laughs) or what's going on for them. I'm not saying it's easy to do that, but but the point is really... It doesn't have to be that hard and that time consuming to see people in the moment and um, just help them a little bit. You know, that was, I said, nothing can make a cancer diagnosis better, but what I wanted was for it to be easier. I just wanted the whole process to be easier than it was. And And I hear from people who go places where it is easier you know, the care is coordinated, things are done in a timely way. You don't have to make 10 phone calls to find a surgeon or, you know, so it, you know, we do not have to reinvent this wheel. That car is out there driving, you know, (laughs) but just not that Mm. many places.
1: So I'm thinking about your comment about anger or frustration. And one of the quotes, I think from your book, or maybe it was a quote about your book is talking about confronting the most critical, terrified, and angry patient that you've ever encountered, which which you said was you. Yes. <laughs> is that is that <laughs> is that true? Yes. And, I, and so how is it? So obviously that anger is coming from somewhere. And in terms of nurses talk, uh, what do we do with that? And maybe some of the edges that you were just talking about that people fear to tread in might be about that anger.
0: Well, for me, it was a feeling of not being seen as a full human being who was scared, who has children who I feel like still needed their mom. And, um, even though they were in college, but you know, they weren't fully launched. Um, and also that anger came from me, the nurse being worked with really sick. Oncology and hospice patients, and feeling like you know this this should be a slam dunk. Like I had the most common kind of breast cancer, the uh, you know progression from mammogram to biopsy to surgery. Um, well, I had genetic testing in there, so that which I was was all negative, but that's a complicating factor. But. You know, this is this is not figuring out a treatment plan for some mysterious glioblastoma or some really rare cancer. Yet it, it was like they were reinventing the wheel every single time. So that was a lot of my anger too, is feeling like, why doesn't this just work? Why doesn't it work better? Mm-hmm.
1: Are you able to recall what you would have called a hard conversation or a difficult conversation to have when you were an oncology nurse?
0: Oh, yeah. I remember this actually was one of the times I asked someone to hold my phone. It was It was a long-term patient who things were not going well for him and his wife just wanted to talk. And I, I actually had time to, it must not have been a busy day because I actually I knew she wasn't eating and actually had time to go buy her something to eat and then we sat in the patient lounge and just talked for half an hour and all her fears about he wanted to keep getting whatever treatment was available because people listening shouldn't doctors are are often always willing to offer something and they'll say well it might you know it might do some good and they don't talk about the negative, effects of that and weighing risk benefit. Like a lot of oncologists are just not good at that. People should know that. But just sitting with her and listening to her understanding that her husband wanted more treatment and her saying, you know, how am I supposed to even get him in and out of the house? Like he can barely walk. She was very petite. He was a very tall man and taking in the challenges that she was facing, then later talking with him. And and he was just so confused about what was possible, what wasn't possible, what might actually help him. Those were very difficult. And what I tried to bring to that was a sense of humility that this is not my decision. There is no obvious this is the right answer, except that, I think the doc, you know, physician should have been more forthcoming with him about risks and benefits. But what is gonna work for these two people? Really challenging. And and I I feel like I did my best that day to be an empathic sounding board. Did I help them get closer to their decision? I hope so. I don't know for sure because it was just a very, very difficult situation because just his disease was making it really, really hard for him to even stand up, couldn't walk, very tough. So it sounds to me like you're saying
1: the listening was hard, that it wasn't necessarily your hard talk. And then what do you do with that as a nurse? How do you respond?
0: Yes. You know, I think that's why you have such a, temptation in healthcare to rush in, to fill that space, to fill that silence. I mean, I'm part of a program here in Pittsburgh where I work with uh, people who get a fellowship to talk about death and dying, and I I end up giving a, a talk for them once every single time. And what I really try to get across is this message of patient autonomy and respecting what patients want, which Takes time, which again, as we've discussed, a lot of doctors and nurses don't have, but also takes a lot of patience and patients can be hard. P-A-T-I-E-N-C-E, not, (laughs) not
1: hospital patients. Right.
0: Well, patients can be hard and. As humans, we don't like uncertainty. We don't like being in situations where we can't say, you know, this is the best choice. This is the second best. This is the third, Um, especially if it's what we're offering people, right? All of that is really, really difficult as a clinician to meet someone halfway. And I'm remembering now when another time when I was in home hospice visiting a a hospital patient, because you can be on hospice in the U S and be in the hospital if there's a need for that. It's a, you know, complicated bureaucratic thing, but it is possible. Um, and you know, patients shouldn't have to worry about the bureaucratic part, but, um, husband whose wife had a feeding tube. She was non-responsive and she'd always said she didn't want a feeding tube and. I just sat there and talked with him about what do you think and just let him and I had the time to let him just talk that through. And after about half an hour, he said, so I should have that feeding tube pulled. And and I said, well, you know, that would be my recommendation based on everything you've told me, putting it in his terms, his values, her values you know, but we're getting back to one of your initial questions. We're not educated that way, right? At least not in the U.S.
1: I think that that's a global, that's okay. a global issue, <laughs> and and that's why we see a lot of programs that have popped up uh, for nurses and physicians and other health professionals post licensure because once people are out there, they they recognize it, and all of the things you've been talking about the frustrations working within the system has influenced some of the um, the program development that's happened. Uh, I wonder if we can pick up on a couple of things. So I one is to me, all of the um, things that you've just been describing reflect to me the how complex the relational work is. You've been giving a lot of examples about how complex nurses relational work, communication with patients and family really is and in the moment, dynamic, unpredictable, you're not sure what's happening and focused on how demanding it is for you to be patient. <laughs> and then the work of in helping patients and families interpret what is happening. I wonder if we can switch over to life as a a patient uh, for you and look at, Nurses communication and relational work from that perspective. Uh, you've, you've said cancer has its own language and I'm wondering you were very familiar with it really as a nurse. And how did that shift for you or what new insights did you have as a patient?
0: The hard thing that I brought to the table was I'd worked as a nurse with people with very serious, aggressive cancers that required arduous treatment. Extended hospital stays. And so I had a a distorted sense of what treatment would be. And it it took me a while to figure that out. Like, this is stage one breast cancer with the best kind of possible tumor markers. This is not acute leukemia. That didn't help me. But um, the thing that did help was knowing really the language of healthcare and how to get the system to work for me, or at least try to get it to work for me. The one cancer language aspect I did not get as a nurse is the emotional aspect and how it really takes over your brain. At least for me, I was afraid and the way that manifested itself was I just became very forgetful. And in our family, we joke about me having this memory that's like a steel trap. Suddenly I was just. Forgetting all kinds of things, uh, important things, trivial things. That's the way I managed it, if managing is the right word. And, you know, at times being tearful and sad and scared. And I had not understood how omnipresent those feelings are for patients. It's really a challenge because you can't come to work feeling 100% empathic for everyone, their fear of death every single time you will burn out in a month, right? But to have an awareness of that seems really, really important. And as I say in healing, we sort of, we had language as nurses that tried to kind of eliminate that, like you lost your hair, but we're saving your life you know you have an IV line that's sticking out of your chest but we're saving your life and as a patient i realize okay yeah you're saving your life my life but also i'm scared and i'm having surgery and now i'm having radiation treatments and then for me the hardest part of treatment was tamoxifen the after treatment And after three and a half years, like half the women on this drug, I felt like the fact that this is maybe going to prevent a recurrence is not enough anymore. I'm not staying on this drug. So the humanity of each individual patient, that is what got left out of the relational picture.
1: So what is it that you think happens that we
0: offer the bright side of things. It's hard to bear the weight of all that suffering. Also, though, treating acute leukemia or a lot of cancers is, there's a sort of built-in ethical dilemma, right? Because we're giving people treatments that make them sick. Mm -hmm. Um, And that that for some people, they'll have lifelong side effects. Mm -hmm. And yet, we are saving their life. Like both things are true. Um, but also as practitioners, that complexity doesn't get talked about. And I think if it would, it would make it easier. The relational between nurses, between nurses and doctors, um, I hate to use the word siloed because it's so overused. But I think it's useful here because, you know, not only are we not always good at talking to each other, we're certainly not good at talking across professions um, about feeling responsible, having an ethical dilemma. It's sort of, we're not talking about that. We're talking about treatment. Um, it's this kind of mantra that we all absorb. Like we could, we could talk about both, mm-hmm. you know, like okay. both are, both are possible. Um, We could really talk about both, but that is not always what ends up happening.
1: No, so maybe it's a case of what you were pointing out before, and that is acknowledging that that's happening and setting out there that. It it seems you know so different from the fact it's so opposite. But you're experiencing both things that you're hopeful that your life is being saved, and then you have to experience this. I, I recall this with a, a patient who had um, severe neuropathy following mm. chemotherapy, and describing that to the nurse and and the physician, but then them saying yes that happens and it's true. It does. Uh, it says it in the side effects, but then to live that and then to live
0: with that forever is very hard. Yes, and i've I've been there. I've heard those conversations, and I'm embarrassed to say, didn't always think about what are we going to do to help this person. Yeah, and and that's the other thing. It's just kind of like the sense of clinician responsibility ends. With the cancer, it's like well, we cured your, cured your cancer. Like, yeah, you you can't feel your feet, and so you can't walk very well. But you don't have cancer, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's know. like yeah. like I'm laughing because on one level, yeah, I get it, but it's also absurd.
1: Yes, acknowledging the absurdity is what you can do. I think that's what I'm hearing you say. You can't really change it. Uh, that's how it is. But pretending that one doesn't exist and the other is not so helpful.
0: Right. And again, in that moment, you can say, yeah, that that happens to some people, or you can say, I'm really sorry. And, you know, we don't have a good way to help you with that. I wish that we did. Would physical therapy make a difference? Would strength training just in terms of helping with balance, even when people can't feel their feet? I don't know that research, you know, I think patients feel hopeless and on the clinician side, it's well. That's not my responsibility. My responsibility's over. It's not even about really taking ownership of the side effects. It's it's again about seeing this whole. Person, you know, if, if someone say they're a nurse and they can't walk well after getting chemo, well, then you can't work as a bedside nurse. You know, you Mm -hmm. can't do that job. If what if you lose feeling in your fingers and you're, you know, someone who, I don't know, fixes telephone panels or does something that involves really fine motor work. And now you can't Mm -hmm. do that job anymore. Mm -hmm. These are not trivial issues. And, And it's, it's interesting. Even since leaving clinical work, becoming a patient myself. I've been able to listen to women talk more about losing their hair and how it's really traumatic for some women. Some women don't care, but for some women it's huge. And I think I just could not have taken that in. It doesn't take that much as a clinician to see that, to understand that, to um, say, yeah, hey, that sucks. You've identified
1: some words and things that struck you differently when you were a patient. Anything else that that sticks out to you, sort of metaphors or terms that got used or that you use that you think
0: yeah, about well, differently now? Two things, and I I, I wrote about this, and Susan Sontag in her book, Illness as mm-hmm. Metaphor, mm-hmm. really talked about all the battle metaphors we use for cancer and and how destructive they are. And I feel that very strongly, but we'll also confess. I would sometimes hear that in my head, you know, a patient who died, I would say, oh, he fought the good fight. And then I would think, why are you saying that? And there's the thing is, there's no other disease we talk about that way. Why does cancer and cancer patients have to bear this burden of fighting? Like no one says, you're not fighting your ALS, you know, you're not fighting your heart disease, Um, so there's, there's so much to unpack there. And then the other label that I found difficult, even though I know people, meant it was such good intentions and I was always very kind about it, but was the word journey. You're on your cancer journey. I do feel like I'm on a healing journey and I feel like I will be on that for the rest of my life. Not just cancer, but just that's human. That's being human, um, but whatever people said in your cancer journey, I always pictured me in an airplane seat with like my tumor next to me, like one of those M&Ms <laughs> with the hands, on, except it was a tumor. So it was gross. Um, and like, nobody wants to go on a journey with cancer. Um, but I knew people meant it well, they were coming from a good place. But Again, no, no other illness. You don't go on a journey with any other illness. It, that felt like such a burden, but you know, I have to fight, but then I also have to be Zen on my journey and very confusing set of conflicting expectations. And so I just like the words diagnosis, treatment, and let's not burden cancer with all these metaphors that are mm-hmm.
1: hard. Yeah, they're hard, I guess, because there's expectations built into them around how you should be feeling or acting. Is that correct?
0: Yes. I guess the throw one more thing out, the pink um for uh you know, breast cancer. cancer awareness and pinktober. And so I was diagnosed at the start of September. And um so just that October was horrible for me that everywhere I went there was just pink everywhere and so everywhere I went it was like it's like you have breast cancer you have breast cancer you have breast cancer you know which was unpleasant um, to say the least but again as i talk about in the book the the whole idea of pink and the feminizing of cancer and saying that like, what's really upsetting about breast cancer is that you might lose your breasts and like, no, it's really upsetting that you might die. Um, I did not lose my breasts. I think losing your breasts is also hard, but it's not the same thing as losing your life and, and how this whole, like losing your femininity gets oddly wrapped into it. And I found that very hard. And as do a lot of women, what's interesting to me is I have not met a single woman who likes the pink and it may be that they know how I feel. And so they don't tell me, um, but I have met no woman who likes it. And in fact, the women who talk about it really, really dislike it as much as I do. I'm not an outlier. That just seems like such a shame that the Susan B. Komen foundation who started the whole pink can rebrand mm-hmm. in some way. And, um, we could not have pink tober and, you know, that Fundraising cannot be connected with the idea that by having breast cancer, you're sort of losing something essential about being a woman. Which yeah, that's interesting. Uh, It's on bread wrappers, the the pink. uh, Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. No. NFL players wearing pink socks. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So I is the message that we just need to be thinking maybe more thoughtful around what we're buying into. Uh, or messages that we assume are being understood in certain ways
0: and I think cancer is scary it's scary Mm -hmm. if you have it it's scary to hear about it if you don't have it and that's my theory about why we get all this language because it's it's scarier than other diseases that actually, I guess only heart disease kills more people, but I brought up ALS because ALS is such a terrible, terrible illness, but cancer is uniquely frightening. It would help patients if we could unburden it from all these uh, expectations. Even Siddhartha Mukherjee's book, uh, Emperor of All Maladies, I read it before when I was an oncology nurse. This is a great book. You know, of course it won the Pulitzer then once I when I was a patient, I felt like I don't want someone to say I'm the emperor of all maladies. That makes me feel <laughs> terrible. You know? So, you know, it, it gives the disease so much power and gives lets the disease shape our lives rather than letting us just live our lives with the disease, which is hard enough.
1: Yes. I wanted to return just briefly to the point you made earlier about being forgetful. Wanted to just point out, that is something that people talk about under great stress. So that cancer, having the diagnosis, is stressful. But carrying stress and certainly catastrophic stress, which it may feel like that at the beginning or at certain points, does create brain freeze (laughs) yes that that freeze that freeze and and so that's something I've noticed that we don't appreciate and I and I don't think I did as much you know in clinical practice that all the things that I was saying I'm assuming are being taken in and remembered but uh, they may not be because the physiology of the other person is interfering with that so I, I I think your point around uh, what it is that patients feel like is important because it does change what they hear and if they hear and if they remember things
0: that we do think are important to share. That's a great point. And listening to you, I realized that was part of my anger too, was a frustration with myself. Like I'm not functioning at the level I'm used to and the system is making everything harder for me, that was also part of my anger. You know, I need things to be easy for me. I need people to help me. And instead, I I feel like I'm back being a floor nurse, pushing a huge rock up a hill, hoping I don't lose hold of it. Yeah, that's just a really good point to keep in mind and i've actually had that come up at meetings workshops i've gone to and i've said you know people when people are sick they're not paying attention as well they're not going to remember things as well and and clinicians nodding like oh yeah i mean I, I and it's not that these are unfeeling people i think we just forget
1: yeah we do what is it that you do or have done to bring yourself into a place where you can listen
0: better is there anything that that helps you do that? try to exercise a lot? I think I am of a listening bent. I think I like listening. I mean, I um, you know, I enjoy doing podcasts and being interviewed, but but the truth is probably it would feel more natural to me to just sit and ask you questions and really listen to what you were saying. <laughs>
1: <laughs> mm. So
0: I think in some ways, it might come. A little bit naturally to me. Um, and I'm, you know, a little bit introverted and all that stuff. But, um, when it's for work, I try to keep a separation between who I am and who they are and give them back their autonomy, have respect for their individuality or if it's a family or what that family needs. And that to me seems key really bothers me when I hear that a, a doctor will say, well, if you were my dad, this is what I recommend. If you were my daughter, you know, that patient is not your dad. They're not your daughter. Um, and I, and I know what the doctor is trying to say, but it's, it's this sort of ownership of people that we kind of fall into in healthcare. And it puts up a barrier between us and, and who they are. So I, I try to see each person as an individual. But but that's also part of why I went into home care, into home hospice, because I felt like I was losing that in the hospital. And I, I wanted to recover that sense of patients are people, not just sort of helpless figures wearing ugly gowns um, who, you know, we never let sleep. Um. <laughs> right. And I
1: think uh, just what you were saying there reminds us uh, the power that we have even in our talk, our conversations that seem so simple. So saying, you know, this is what I do, or I, I feel the same way or whatever. Uh, that also carries power around patients' decisions.
0: That's a great word to bring in.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, so here's another great word. I I read in your um, uh, healing newsletter, a notation about compassion is the radicalism of our time. Yes. <laughs> And I thought that was so beautiful, considering this is radical nurse talk, and recognizing that nursing communication is a radical act of care. So it it seems like a very good um, yes note to 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 finish on that compassion yes. is the radicalism of our time.
0: Something to yeah, think I, about. I, I taught a class um, that Carlo here in Pittsburgh this past spring called um, "Healing Through Writing and Storytelling," and At one point, I had some, the students read some short stories because we read fiction, nonfiction, you know, they wrote about, we talked about, they were, they were psychology students actually talking about the power of stories and healing. And And the students said, this story reminds me of our world right now, which is that nobody really cares about anybody else. And they all felt that way. These students in their 20s and i thought it made me so sad um but also speaks to that idea of compassion as the radicalism of our time so profoundly um and here in the us covid it was like a national wound you know that still has not healed yeah if compassion is empathy in action which is how some people define it it is radical and i hate to do something like Encourage everyone. Try to do one compassionate act a day. But maybe that's not a bad idea. You know, maybe that's not a bad life goal. That sounds like a wonderful note to to leave our
1: conversation <laughs> today. I think I could, I could have this conversation for hours with you, but uh, that's a that's a wonderful challenge or thought for us all to take away. Thank you so much for this rich conversation, Teresa. Uh, how can people get in touch with you or access your ideas or your books or
0: your website? So my website is teresabrown.com. It's Teresa with an H. Um, and there's a contact. You can reach me there. I'm still on Twitter, um, at, at Teresa Brown (laughs) and, uh, I'm on Instagram at, at Teresa Brown RN 2021. I'm also on Facebook. I'm a Teresa Brown on Facebook. But yeah, if you want to email me, find me through my website. Sometimes I'm slow getting back to emails, but I do I definitely read them. I enjoy them and I do eventually respond to them, sometimes quickly, sometimes not. So <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening. You can reach
1: me or information about this episode on our website www.radicalnursetalk.com. The editor of this podcast is Jeremy Ramos Foley. Social media by Amy Strachan. If you'd like to support the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. Join me next week for more Radical Nurse Talk. In the meantime, have a radical conversation in your practice. It can change lives.